This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. The church will always face external threats. The gospel will always incite opposition. What if our biggest problem then isn't hostility from the world, but instead compromise inside the church? Gerald Sitzer marshals that argument in his new book, Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World, published by Brazos. Sitzer is professor of theology at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. He writes this, the problem we currently face is not primarily political or ideological. The problem is the compromised identity of the church itself and the compromised message of the gospel. Sister joins me on Gospel Bound to explain how this third way in the early church attracted attention, not for being loud and obnoxious, but by being different. We'll also discuss why millennials drift away from the church, how how to change a church culture of entertainment, the high price of fighting for power and privilege and more. So thank you, Gerald, for joining me on Gospel Bound. My privilege. So, Joe, this is not the book you originally set out to write. Why did you shift directions? Well, initially, my interest was in the early Christian catechumenate. I did quite a bit of research on that, wrote a couple of articles for journals. And I was fascinated at this training program that the early Christian period seemed to use uh, universally, at least around the Mediterranean world, that moved people from their traditional Roman background into the Christian fold. And considering the uh, enormity of that task, it took them quite a while to do that. You know, they didn't have lapsed Catholics or Methodists or Presbyterians back then, you know. Mm -hmm. They had people who knew nothing. Uh, But after studying and uh, reading uh, the sources thoroughly in that early Christian period, I realized that the book really had to be about the gospel, not about the catechumenate. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ, uh, as the apostles discovered it after the resurrection uh, and ascension and Pentecost, set in motion such a radical movement based on the identity of Jesus and what he came to do in his incarnation. And I really needed to write a book on that. So the last chapter became a chapter devoted to the catechumenate I called Crossing to Safety after the famous novel. But before that, uh, it's about authority and it's about community and it's about the er early Christian theological map and so on, all focusing really on the identity of Jesus Christ. I think we forget because we're so saturated with Christianity in the West, however sort of compromised it is, to realize how unusual Christianity is as a religion. There's simply nothing even remotely like it. And the Romans knew that, by the way. Early Roman critics, long before they really had a reason to be critical of Christianity, realized that they were up against something brand new and they were they were threatened by it. Not so much by the power of Christianity, but by the uniqueness of the message and the lifestyle that came from it. 
You describe a church that is not too isolated, not too accommodating, faithful and winsome. Explain more about this early church as a third way and how they managed some of that balance within a very difficult situation in that Roman Empire. Yeah, difficult indeed. Well, first of all, I make very clear that the third way is not a middle way. It's not the way of compromise. It's a completely different way. And obviously, the third way begs uh, us to ask the question, what's the first and second? Well, the first way was the Roman way. Uh, Roman religion was pluralistic, syncretistic, transactional, ubiquitous. I mean, it was everywhere in the empire. Temples, monuments, shrines, statues of gods and goddesses were, I mean, you could not avoid seeing them day in and day out in Roman cities across the empire. And of course, all of that was organized under the rule of the emperor, who uh, by the second century uh, began to be known as a god. Uh, the second way, surprisingly, was the Jewish way. We forget how many Jews were in the Roman or the Mediterranean world. Scholars say up to 10% of the population of the Roman Empire was Jewish. And uh, they were admired because their faith was ancient, highly ethical. They were strictly monotheistic. Uh, they were actually given benefits from uh, the Roman government. Uh, there were certain things they didn't have to do that all of their citizens had to do. But they were also isolated because of their religious scruples, uh, circumcision, food laws, marriage laws, and other things like that. So they were, they were identifiable, easily identifiable, sort of like a, a opposing team wearing a, a jersey. You just know who they are. So I call that the way of isolation. Rome was the way of accommodation. They were absorptive of new religions. Jews were the way of isolation. isolation. And then this movement shows up. And it just doesn't fit any of the categories at all. Its message, I mean, what a strange son of God Jesus was compared to, say, uh, Caesar Augustus, who was mm -hmm. also called son of God. Mm -hmm. Here's this obscure figure who is born in, uh, out of scandalous circumstances in a small town in the far reaches of the empire. He dies a brutal death on a cross in, outside the city gates of Jerusalem. He never writes a book, never raises an army. He doesn't do anything uh, that we would normally ascribe uh, to someone who achieves greatness. And yet, uh, through the work of his disciples and his early followers, he literally, I mean, even the book of Acts says, has turned the world upside down. Uh, it's just so unusual. And Roman intellectuals sniffed it out and knew it. Hmm. And eventually, so did the emperors, <laughs> which, is why, which is why they persecuted it. And it took a while yeah. to ramp up. Yeah. Uh, early persecution was a little more localized, often mm -hmm. based on um, uh, mental illness and craziness and, and so on. But by the end of the second century, we're starting to see big time persecution. Yeah, and ramped up even not long before then, of course, Constantine and the major transformation within there as well. I mean, that's like, I mean, a, just before that was actually right. the biggest and the worst right. Right, for Diocletian. Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, we often want to imagine that history has these sort of clear lines and, and clear trends. But when you're looking at persecution, the first three centuries, it is, it is, it is a jagged line. It is, it is a jagged line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, and there's so many different things that are, are fascinating in this book, and we're going to hopefully cover a lot of that here, but it might be easier in some ways if our biggest problem today was hostility 
as we imagine it in some of the early church. But one of the things you observe about millennials is that they tend to drift away from the church in indifference. Yeah, that's and right. Not, and not because of some kind of carefully reasoned arguments. So what what do you suggest is the antidote to be able to address that, especially for millennials? Yeah. Well, it, it, I think in the main, it is true. You know, a lot of research is being done on this by sociologists. And I just read uh, a recent book last week on this and on the religion of 20-somethings. And uh, uh, so 18 to 29, I think the age group is. And now about 30% identify themselves as nuns. And that number seems to be growing. I mean, uh, pretty much all social scientific research indicates this. But they're not reading Marx and Freud anymore. Uh, they're not they're not um, uh, assaulting Christianity intellectually. They're drifting away, especially when they live in more secular cities like San Francisco or New York or Boston or our, our Seattle, for example. Even even rates of church attendance in a city like Spokane is surprisingly low, much lower than in the Midwest and the South. And uh, drifting is the right word. There's a kind of subtle erosion. There's a drip, drip, drip of indifference that uh, takes over them. And they eventually just look at Christianity as entirely, entirely irrelevant to their lives. Why, why should I be Christian? I've had former students say that to me. Why should I be Christian? I don't know a reason anymore. So the old way of doing, say, evangelism and apologetics is probably going to have to give way to a new way, I think, highly relational. Uh, based on example, uh, I believe in evangelism entirely. So I'm not I'm not at all hedging on that. People need to know Jesus and they need to submit to his lordship. But maybe that's it is the evangelism needs to be more relational, but also more robust. They're quite suspicious and hostile toward the church. They see political compromise. They see theological compromise. They see cultural compromise. And I think many of this younger generation just want to see something truly authentic. Well, that leads right into my next two questions. One is about that authenticity. Uh, what would it look like if Christians just acted like Christians? We talk sometimes about the need for some kind of new agenda, but there's not really a need of a new agenda. It's the same spirit. It's the same gospel. It's the same risen Christ there. And yet some somehow we, we, we fall short in a number of different ways as sinners, but then also in ways of just compromise. But before I get to that question, let me ask first, what would it look like for Christians today to relate to our own government with the kind of ambivalence that you identify in early Christians toward Rome? Uh, just teaching a group of mostly millennials within my church um, about that, about government and politics and things like that. It's one of the things that's most striking is the kind of ambivalence toward government, especially take, for example, First Peter um, in a context where Peter's writing about a Roman emperor who he doesn't yet know will put him to death. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's so much in the New Testament there. Uh, Paul tells us to be obedient to our earthly rulers, um, but uh, he's talking about the Emperor Nero. We know that by the end of the century, Domitian is going to turn on Christianity, uh, but we never see this kind of open hostility. Uh, I think the best uh, rule here is from 1 Timothy 2, when Paul says, just pray for peace. And what he what he really means by that is that uh, pray that we are allowed to go about our business being Christian. And if we go about our business being Christian, 
we don't want interference from the government. We don't need help from them at all. We can do this just fine on our own, uh, trusting in the gospel and living in the power of the Holy Spirit and doing the work of Jesus in the world. And I think that's what Christianity in the early Christian period has to teach us, is they went about that business with a great deal of authenticity and success. Now, it wasn't perfect. We know this. You you know enough history to know that they made mistakes. They did stupid things. That's always been the case in the history of Christianity. There's not been a golden age here or under Bernard and Claire, of Clairvaux or Francis of Assisi or the Reformation of the Wesleys. There's never been a golden age. Having said that, they did do some things well enough that we can learn from. Uh, a deep commitment to the authority of Jesus, uh, a deep commitment to imitate him in life, uh, and other things like that that I think are worthy of study and emulation. You know, the other thing I want to say is that they weren't carrying the ball and chain of Christendom, which we are. Yeah. And uh, we're living uh, sort of on the tail end of the reign of Christendom in the West. Uh, it, it's more evident in Europe than it is in the United States. And uh, though there are benefits that come from Christendom, higher education, for example, was a Christendom invention. Uh, a lot of medical care came out of Christendom. I mean, there are things that we can be grateful for there. I don't want to demonize it. Anabaptists would demonize it. I'm not an Anabaptist. Um, having said that, there have been some defects. And one of them is that a nominal Christianity has just reigned supreme in Western civilization. And I think we're going to see the gradual erosion and erasure of that over the next few decades, because there's simply no reason or not as much of a reason to be Christian as there was when we were living under the reign of Christendom. And I'm older than you are. I've got kids that are all my five kids and they're all married and they're all in their 30s. And um, I remember in the 50s and 60s what it was like to go to church. Everybody wearing nice suit coats. I was wearing a, a, a tie and a coat by the time I was in the sixth grade. And then everybody would go to a club to have lunch afterwards and then play golf. There was a kind of, there was a kind of cultural Christianity that reigned supreme. And I think we're going to see that gradually fade. And it's going to allow us as... Uh, committed Christians to, to step forward and, um, and demonstrate what real discipleship is. Now, we still face some threats. Prosperity gospel is certainly one of them. I think a kind of white Christian nationalism is another. I think trying to um, uh, seek um, the favor of the state, whether to the right or to the left. Mm -hmm. And I think over time that will be exposed as folly. I hope so anyway. I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, Pagans and Christians in the City by Stephen Smith. There's a lot of overlap between yeah. what he's writing about, you know, kind of a year before your book. Um, and one of them that gave me a lot of uh, food for thought in this last year. But it kind of makes me wonder. Uh, well, I guess I'll get into this from your book based on what you write about Tertullian, because I'm trying to figure out, are Christians the best citizens, i.e. the more Christian we are, the more sort of like the more the government should want us? Or at the same time, are we more subversive than that? Like, are we somehow a threat? Because that's one thing that Smith points out is that the threat of living for a, for a different ethic and for eternity was ultimately what was so dangerous to the Romans. And I think 
that's pretty similar now. You know, nobody minds us when we just say, hey, Jesus changed my heart and now I feel better about myself. Nobody or, or minds become, that. Or if we become radical Republicans or Democrats. Yeah. Everybody loves that, too. Yeah, right. So I mean, it's just there's not there's not there's there's not a problem with that. But then all of a sudden when you say, no, 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 I live for a different kingdom. Yeah. I, I live for a for a for a law that's written on the heart. Yes. Um, and you must be born again. Like all of a sudden, that's where we get into a lot of trouble. But if I resonated with what you described as Tertullian and the differences between the Greco-Roman way of life and the Christian way of life as Christians, we don't just indulge our appetites as if this is all there is to life. We live for an eternal kingdom yeah. that will redeem and reclaim the world. So I'm wondering is how do we bring more of that reality, that reality it's coming into our present in order to resist our appetites for sin, because that's going to have to be where a lot of this starts with the kind of compromise that we've projected onto the world that has actually turned off many people to the yeah. church. Yeah. For example, how generous we are, the stats of, of Christians, even evangelical Christians who tend to be a little bit more active in the practice of their faith, our uh, stats when it comes to generosity is just abysmally low. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Well, you actually asked two questions. Um, <laughs> the, first, the first has to do with um, uh, are we the best citizens or are we the greatest threats? And the answer is yes and yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the irony of being Christian. We, we, don't, we don't just follow a different king. We follow a different kind of king. We don't just live for a different kingdom. We live for a different kind of kingdom. And that is inherently going to be threatening to the social order. I, I don't care how you cut it. It's going to be threatening. So that means we need to be active citizens. We need to vote. We can get involved in nonprofits. We can run for political office. Uh, that's what makes me reformed rather than Anabaptist. Having said that, I'm Anabaptist on another level, and that is I'm going to simply live differently in this world. I'll be a very different kind of politician. I'll be a very different kind of citizen or doctor or lawyer or teacher or anything else. So uh, in any particular sphere of influence, uh, people are going to see me as seeking the welfare of the city, planting my vineyard, building my home. Uh, being in it for the long haul, being an active citizen. On the other hand, there's going to be something about me that's going to make people feel really uneasy yeah. because the king I follow is not just different, but a different kind. As I said before, the kingdom for which I live is not just different. It's a different kind of kingdom. And that was the genius of early Christianity. In some ways, I think it's harder for us because the temptation of worldliness and the temptation of seeking cultural and political power is greater because we can actually access it. <laughs> but look at what happened to mainline Christianity in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. And I think it's a cautionary tale for evangelicals today. Yeah. <laughs> I feel as, I feel yeah. as nervous. Yeah, I, I would attest to that as a child of the United Methodist Church who's shifted in a reformed and evangelical direction. I can absolutely attest to that. I see 
a number of the same concerns, but oddly enough, in, in multiple directions. Sometimes it's sort of a conservative accommodation to the culture, yes, but right. the Methodist church. And sometimes, of course, it's a sort of infatuation with liberalism of like, don't you, th- th- this doesn't work. <laughs> this definitely yeah. does not work. It's not biblical and it doesn't work. Uh, here's just one fun anecdote from the book, which is, which is full of them. But I love the example of how Christians survived the plague at higher rates than the Romans did. Just Tell us how that worked. Well, there were two massive plagues in the in the Greco-Roman world. Plagues have come and gone through the history of civilization. We may be close to another one right now in China as it spreads. But uh, one occurred in 165 and one occurred in 250. We have attestation not only from Greco-Roman sources, but obviously from Christian sources, largely through the writings of bishops. And we even have some of their sermons devoted to this. And uh, uh, especially the plague in 250, Christians began to stand out for the way that they provided medical care at a kind of basic level for people who suffered from affliction. They buried the dead and they cleaned bodies first. They just didn't throw them into pits. They, they, they lent dignity to death, so to speak. They cared for the sick and the dying. Um, and any form of gentle medical care is always going to give somebody a slight advantage when it comes to survival rates. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. They survived at a slightly higher rate. Uh, two interesting insights there. Sometimes uh, the person who was providing the medical care would get the disease and would die, and the person who had the disease would survive. Huh. And one particular bishop uh, uh, demonstrating bad signs, but great theology said that the person who was caring for them actually took the disease on himself or herself. So to spare the other person who was uh, the, the, the person originally sick. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Now, now we know that that didn't happen, but it's great theology and it's great witness of the gospel. Well, once the person survived the illness, guess what? They were immune. So they could be a workforce to provide medical care for other people. This Mm -hmm. became a profound form of witness in the Greco-Roman world. And uh, even um, Greco-Roman sources acknowledge that. It's interesting in my chapter on on life in the world, I I cite the stories of two people, both who were uh, contemporaries, they knew of each other, they might have corresponded. One was Basil of Caesarea, the great bishop of the fourth century, great writer, he wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have a lot of his sermons. Uh, He wrote a book on the nature of Christ. I mean, this is a star, big, big personality, and founded the first Christian hospital in the West. Uh, most sources would acknowledge a hospital for immigrants and refugees, a hospital that cared for lepers, uh, that provided job training. It became such a massive enterprise. It took on the name of a city. I mean, very unusual. At the same time, Julian the Apostate, who had been raised a Christian, turned against Christianity, actually wrote a book against Christianity and wanted to gradually marginalize the Christian movement. He didn't persecute it, but he wanted to marginalize it. And he writes a letter to one of his pagan priests that says, you know, there's a lot I can do to devote the uh, sources of the empire to marginalize Christianity. For example, I won't let them teach in our schools. Christians can't do that. But he said, there's one thing 
I can't compete with them, not even close. And it's their care for the least of these. He said, I could send money to my pagan priests. I could empty the coffers of the Roman Empire. And they have no motivation because of their worldview to be able to care for the least of these. Um, uh, uh, it was a patronage system in the Greco-Roman world and mm. Christians operated by a different ethic called mercy. Mm. Uh, it's a great illustration of two people living at the same time who had such a mm. different view of reality and a different way of living in the world. Oh, I love that. Uh, as we think about how we might be able to make a difference, do you think it's actually possible to win our culture? I mean, that's kind of a loaded phrase there, but to make that difference from the bottom up rather than the top down. The reason I'm asking is you, you do seem to indicate that in the book, but we've been hearing for a long time from sociologists like James Davison Hunter that really populism doesn't work. And that it's less effective than seeking to influence the influencers top down. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's both and. Who am I to say otherwise? I mean, by the fourth century, Christianity became a cultural force. There were great intellectuals that began to emerge. Even, even earlier than that, Origen was a great early Christian intellectual that started his own uh, academy for uh, training people intellectually. And we know quite a bit about it because one of his students paid tribute to him. And we still have that in print. His name is Gregory Thaumaturgus. And it's a, it's a gorgeous treatment of how a Christian teacher ought to function in producing a generation of intellectuals. Uh, having said that, I'm sure James Davison Hunter is talking about the kind of the, the global level or the uh, the 30,000 foot view. But yeah. in the end, all of us are living in communities. We're teaching at one school, not all schools. Uh, we're attending one church. We're going to one YMCA. And eventually, all of our influence has to be grassroots. I don't care if we're the wealthiest person in the world or we're poor, whether we've got PhD from Harvard or we barely made it through high school. In the end, our influence has to be local and interpersonal and small scale institutional. And then I think with a workforce that continues to grow, that influence can become can begin to bubble up. So I'm a little more grassroots in my orientation. A couple more questions with Gerald Sitzer on resilient faith, how the early Christian third way changed the world. In your conclusion, I wondered what you meant by this line. You write, if anything, the harder Christians fight for power and privilege, the more precipitous the decline will be for cultural power and privilege will come at an increasingly high price. Well, what is that high price? Well, first of all, as we move into a post-Christendom phase of our nation's history, by the way, I don't, I don't use the word post-Christian. We're not post-Christian yet, but we're post-Christendom. Mm. We're going to have to make increasingly big compromises in order to maintain our position of cultural privilege as the culture itself kind of drifts. So uh, to be, say, an influential politician, and uh, uh, is going to require more compromise than it did before unless we're willing to stand fast and pay the price for it. That's on the right or the left. It doesn't matter to me which one. Uh, I think where's ample evidence both ways. Um, so, I mean, I think we're going to need to be prepared to pay a price. 
and uh, lose that privilege and amass our resources and rally the body of Christ uh, to function differently. And I mean, as simple and silly as this sounds, I think we just have to make disciples, real disciples, real followers of Jesus. And that's why I concluded the book with a chapter on the catechumenate. Here's this, I mean, shocking as this sounds, three-year training program to prepare people for the rites of initiation. Now, I baptized my kids as infants, so this isn't so much on your view of baptism. What it is about is our commitment to move people to a place of genuine, fun what I call functional Christianity or functional discipleship. To put it this way, put a detective on the tail of a Christian for a week, they would be recognizably Christian all the time. Hmm. Not just when they're at church or attending a Bible study, but when they're at work, when they're in their neighborhood, when they're at the club, uh, when they're walking down the street, whatever they're doing, they are recognizably Christian all the time. And I think for the most part, we've done a pretty poor job at doing that. And that's why uh, this catechumenate is such a curiosity to me. In fact, we at Whitworth are actually developing a two-year new catechumenate for churches to use. Mm -hmm. Two years, not a eight weeks, not a right. weekend retreat to prepare people for church right. membership. I don't think we can assume much anymore. Yeah. People that are saturated by the biblical story and other things like that. I think we have to kind of start over again. Well, you're talking talking to the right folks here, talking about catechesis. I mean, one reason why I worked with Tim Keller on the New City Catechism was just the realization uh, it's not an option about whether we're going to catechize. It's just a matter of whether you want to do it. You just want to let the world or do it for you. Do it. By the way, around here, we call it the three greats, the mm. great tradition of historic orthodoxy the great commission to make disciples and the great commandment to love as Jesus oh, loved. That's great. I like because that. Because like our, our catechesis needs to be behavioral, not just doctrinal. And yeah. this is one of the weaknesses of the Reformation. It was really a family argument. If you would have interviewed anybody in the 16th century outside of some people who had just drifted out of Orthodox faith altogether, like uh, um, Surveyors. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you would have had everybody say, yeah, I believe in the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. Well, they just parsed it differently. Now, I come down on, on uh, certain sides there. I, I'm not neutral about that. But it was more uh, a doctrinal, a family argument about doctrine. And I think we are in a very, very different place in Christianity in the West right now. <laughs> We well, you said the fundamentals and we need to build. Yeah. Well, you, you said earlier that um, you're talking with millennials and they say you have former students and they say, I don't have any reason to believe. And, and you stop and you want to think, well, yeah, you do, because Jesus is risen from the dead. It's the resurrection. But Correct. that's not really what they're getting at. They're, they might even acknowledge Correct. that. Mm -hmm. but there just doesn't seem to be a desire to live it. So it seems like I mean, I'll, I'll give my two cents about evangelism here. It seems like people now and, and I'm in a church context where thankfully we're seeing um, you know a decent number of conversions. And it seems like people get assimilated into a community the church that they desire to be a part of with an ethic that is compelling to them, an ethic of love and mm -hmm. an ethic of, of concern for one another and support for one another that stands out from the world. And in that process, they begin to change their mind on a number of issues. But I can guarantee you 
I'm not usually having an argument with them about doctrinal precision no. or about um, or about gay marriage. They get associated, they get assimilated into the church culture, you know, through that desire, and then eventually, I can trust through regular teaching and through ongoing community that they will be discipled yeah. in those things. They will change their theology. They will change their views on these different issues, but. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that, how that sounds to you, but that, I mean, it seems very normal within our context where we're seeing a lot of millennials come to faith. Well, this is, this is anecdotal, but as I said, I've got five kids. They're all married. They're all Christian and they're all more on the conservative side of things. So it's not like these guys are just drifting away, but there are things that were, that mattered in my generation and they don't care anymore. Now they have, they have a position on it and it tends to be more conservative, but it's not a hill they're going to die on. They're kind of going back to things that are more basic. Mm. And maybe they have something to teach us there. Yeah. Again, they're well, not fighting Christendom wars, and my right. generation still was. Um, well, and for talk- good reason. We should have. But I, um, I'm not sure that's relevant anymore or as relevant. It is, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, as much as we want to say that the same things in the same way are going to work, I mean, but that's not, I mean, like you saying, like you're saying, it's not just getting back to those fundamentals. It's like, wait, which fundamentals are we right. talking about here? Are we talking about Jesus is Lord, that we're supposed to live in such a way that testifies in all aspects of our life? I mean, those are the fundamentals. That is the back. great tradition. That's what we define as right. the great tradition. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's add just, I mean, I, Sometimes I like to close my interviews with a practical question along these lines, but you write, nothing short of a change of church culture will suffice from a culture of entertainment, politics, personality, and program to a culture of discipleship. So along the lines of much of what we've talked about here, but what's one thing a church leader listening to this gospel bound podcast could immediately do to begin to affect that shift as they awaken to this challenge? Well, I think most churches get into the habit of defining their existence according to certain protocols and formal ways of doing things. So a preacher says, my job is to preach a sermon or an elder. My job is to run committees or a Sunday school teacher is to prepare a Sunday school lesson. And I think we need to step back from all that and ask the question, what are we doing to actually building disciples and what would that actually look like? What, what does a functional Christian look like? Describe it. And I would suggest you many Christians wouldn't be able to do that. I go to church. I I give money. But notice it's I give money. It's not stewardship. It's I go to church. It's not what I'm doing when I'm not at church. What does that mean? How do we translate that in terms of our view of marriage and family, our view of work, our view of stewardship, um, our view of relationships, who we're investing in? Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Are we equipping people to actually make disciples and creating a culture of multiplication instead of addition? So I would begin by asking the question, what does a mature Christian look like? And what are we doing to help move people by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the authority of the gospel in that direction? Amazing how we can so easily forget the whole point. Mm-hmm. of it all. But you've done a great job of helping us to remember that. Um, my guest on Gospel Bound has been Gerald Sitzer, author of Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World, published by Brazos. Thanks, Gerald. My privilege. Thanks. Great conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. 
Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes. Subscribe to my newsletter and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.